Yeah. I mean, I'll never miss an opportunity to blame Craig for something. Well, yeah, because it's a, it's a fucking robot. And you know what? We were just talking about this. There will never be peace between humanity and machines. That's, <laughs> that's a ridiculous ass. Yeah, I'll, I'll, if you notice something or I notice something, we'll just, we'll take a, take a breather. Let it catch up with us. All right. Just want to get, want to uh, jump Let's in? Just do, do, do that cold open or whatever. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe it was in there somewhere. Good evening, afternoon, whatever time you're listening to this record. <laughs> I'm Corbin, joined by... Uh, Roberto. And today we're covering Ice by Anna Kavan. Kavan? Uh, in my head, it was always Cavan. Anna Cavan, like the first half of Kavanaugh. Okay. Oh, I should be wrong about that. It was actually Kavanaugh. Nah, I don't think so. I think it's Cavan. I think that sounds right to me. Anna Cavan. I don't want to see when I see that van. I I, I want to stress the A, but whatever. Um, we we always slide our names anyways. Cavan. Cavan. Anna Cavan. I don't have much point to this. It was, it's, it's a nice pseudonym, though. That's right. She did not have a good time with, with her, what was it, her marriages, apparently. Yeah. In this background, she, she ended up dying of um, her heroin addiction, right? Yeah, I mean, she, yeah, that's that's part of her, um, of her mythology. I don't, I don't, I don't want to. No, I don't want to be glib about it, but it is like it. It's hard to find any writing about about this work that doesn't invite her her biography to to be in conversation with with her writing. Yeah, and the big part of that is a string of difficult relationships, uh, a relationship with an abusive mother, and a lifelong heroin addiction. Let me look up cause of death: congestive heart failure, hmm. possibly related to to her drug use. Also, possibly not. Yeah. Either way, it was something that that she never really kicked. She died shortly after. She died in 1968, shortly after publishing Ice in 1967. It makes me wonder if, if those two, the warden and our narrator, if, if they're if they're kind of based on the, the previous you know rough relationships that she had had. Right. Like once I read a bit about her biography, it was hard not to not to draw those connections. You know, for. In the classic jumping around style that this show typically takes, um, did we say what the show is called? It's Pleasant Evenings Book Club. It's a it's a book club. What what more do you want? Um, what was I saying? Oh yeah, um, like her second relationship after she escaped from her first husband, who I didn't get too much detail. I guess it was con- kind of controlling. Was twelve years a senior, and from a marriage that only resulted because of pressure from her mother. She started seeing a I'm not sure, like like a like a race car driver. She would hang out with these like street racers a lot. She she was into her uh, muscle cars, right? Yeah, and it was uh it was just like this uh, milieu that introduced her to heroin, was maybe her most long lasting relationship. But the emphasis on on cars, like there's a. There's a scene near the end when the narrator is driving back to to the elusive woman. Um, man, this book is so strange. Um, we're gonna have to like as we as we get delve into the discussion proper, we'll have to like come up with names. Uh, yeah, names for this stuff. 
Yeah, when he's driving back to see her near the end, he talks about like just enjoying the feeling of going really fast, of be- of becoming one with his machine. Hell yeah. I going fast in a car. <laughs> yeah, and I'm so like Gundam pilled right now that it's like there's something there too about um just feeling at home in a in a mobile suit or something. But we don't have to that's elsewhere. Oh, it's kind of a cool parallel. Yeah, I'll cut out I'll cut out Gundam. We don't have to yeah, speaking speaking of fast cars, um, it opens up exactly in that way too. Of um, n- narrator guy um, dri- driving fast in some undisclosed Euro- European lo- lo- locale. All right, but that's thing. The thing with the car, uh, then you know, at the very end, it's just about like the comfort of being in the car while the whole world freezes to death. Like this, like momentary, like pocket of of heat and intimacy. There's a lot of romance associated with a lot of romance and freedom associated with uh with vehicles. Well so, well, so the the book opens up in a very very similar fashion to near the ending of him driving fast. Uh-huh. Nary guy is driving fast through a undisclosed European country. Right. Yeah, there are like no proper nouns. <laughs> so is this country, that country? Even when, when, when in the context of talking about war, um, the sides are just talked about as the big powers and the small powers. The West is brought up, but the West is uh, in lowercase. Right. There, there's mention of North, um, the, the equator regions as well. We had no, no like proper yeah. nouns, no, no city name. Yeah, there are like some. The only times they get like strict clues is when he goes to the north. Um, he goes undercover. And, uh, talk as uh, like a a scholar of some kind, and he's like he says like, well, I've heard there's theories that explorers from this region were the first to discover the new world. So they know, okay, so this is Europe. And then we have lemurs as a. That's something that comes up a lot, and I believe they're just native to Madagascar. And there's um, the equator gets brought up one time. At least we have a point of latitude. I want to say latitude. Latitude's correct. We'll go with latitude. Yes. Okay. (laughs) It's low stakes, but I did not want to say longitude incorrectly especially if it was the wrongitude to say that's uh, perfect <laughs> comedy goal. it was it was just it was dumb it was dumb of me and you can you can say it no no that was that was rad and it had it had raditude as the weezer hmm. would say just stay on this this is good this is good. Some golden pleasant evening material <laughs> Yeah, I think this might be one of the ones I get 50 downloads instead of oh, 20 sure. downloads. Right, but let's... uh, Like, we're having fun, but this is a very dour um, book. Right, so it starts with... Uh, or the narrator. I think we can just call him the narrator. I think that's a good, a good name for him. I guess we... Yeah, I think this is fine. Like, when you say the narrator, the the girl... And the ward, and the, those are pretty much the. Main, I, I, I like to you call him. Characters. I like to call the, the girl, the elusive girl. 
I kind of liked that. Oh yeah, I was just trying to describe kind of her. Well, you know, oh. she 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 oh. has to be. So you know, our story opens kind of like it ends with narrator driving fast, and it's it's cold and snowy and freezing, and there's ice everywhere, and it's crazy for that time of year. It was like, oh, yeah. it's weird for us to get this weather at this point in time. Yeah. It was like not known cold at this time of year. Yeah, it's, like it's kind of a cool stylistic choice to uh, what never disclose obvious proper non-location, but also same with time of year either. Yeah. And that's a choice that like as the story goes on makes more and more sense or or you know becomes more and more like uh, uh full of of meaning as we get um references to the snow covering everything up like there's a lot of references to the snow erasing what once was and things losing uh meaning and losing definition and differentiation as the world comes to an end. It's a very uh, entropic uh, <laughs> uh, approach to world building. And even time undergoes this kind of shift as there as that weird scene where the narrator like hallucinates like a Jesus type kind yeah. of figure. Talks about like uh, uh, the future and the past compressing. And later as the world is ending, he's saying like time on like the, the past vanishing, the future becoming oblique and existing in an ever shrinking now which is a beautiful like that's what the, those are like little moments that keep me that kept me going reading this thing which is so bleak so dark and so like confusingly written also like there's nothing to hang on to except for these momentary moments of beauty or momentary tension there's there's a weird like sometimes i guess there are like episodes that make you like hold on for the next turn of the page like it veers into like like a spy drama for a while, war story. Yeah, I, I mean it was. I mean paragraphs would jump around between these scenes too, where they'd be surrounded by ice. One paragraph, and then the next paragraph, it's back to some semblance of normalcy again. Yeah, it, it kept the the book kept making me like go back and wonder if I like skipped a page or something because of the way it would just like uh, jump between scene or setting. The first time that happens, it is, uh, I think, well communicated as a kind of hallucination in the beginning where he when he's driving, he sees uh, an image of the uh, the girl, the elusive the albino woman. He sees her just like out in the snow getting buried by ice. Like he imagines him like diving to rescue her. And then it's like back to the car. So like, was he standing just now for a second? Like it's it, it does kind of contextualize it well enough in that moment as a as a kind of hallucination or fantasy but the way that these things drop is so out of nowhere and sometimes it happens as part of the natural progression of the story and then it jumps back a few steps and goes actually that was one of those reveries um yeah sometimes it was more confusing than other times uh, I think when they when they go to the warden's town, like the the escape from the warden's town was really confusing to me. Um, yeah, that was kind of odd. He uh, first the warden escapes, and we get this like jump to third person omniscient. Like I don't know, it just felt like somehow the narrator just knew that the warden. And sorry, listen, we'll get to the warden who they are. <laughs> um, if if you don't feel like reading this very sad book. Uh, uh, for, like you get this like vision of them escaping, and then 
of the warden escaping with the girl and the narrator trying to go after them in a car, hitting a tree, getting stuck, and then it getting stuck, going back to the house, and then it's like, oh, th- then it's like him on a boat again. It mentions an airlift at some point, and he says like, oh, that was all a nightmare. But then there's reference made to that to those episodes earlier, so I was unsure which part was fantasy. I guess I, guess I have a theory. Oh, for like the the exact for the um uh, chronology of events um, there or for for like how how our narrator is able to know uh, omnisciently how to get to the warden what the warden's doing um yeah there's one part where apparently someone told him like later it gets brought up i, oh, I do wait. i do, okay, I do wonder I if they are the same person mhm there's the fight club of it all to to address. Or at least that strong sense of identification with uh, one another. Yeah. Right. Like those moments where they where the warden and the narrator just like look at each other and like there's this like sense of like connection, that this understanding that they have. Like at one point, like the narrator's like willing to like forsake the girl entirely, like the, the whole thing, the whole uh, thrust of what the story has been so far, just so he could pal around with the warden. Yeah, and there are those moments that are like confusing too, where every time he infil, whenever he infiltrates, you know, the warden's many castles, it always seems to go like just like a little bit better than than you would expect. Like he looks out, everyone sort of ignores him right when they need to. Exactly. Uh, but uh, going back to the beginning, like there's, I guess, like a. Oh, we can contrast this dynamic between the warden and the narrator with the first uh, husband guy. I don't know. I have other boyfriend seals. Yeah, with the other male figure who is keeping the girl. So what he's where he's driving to in the beginning? He's like in town, or he's in this country, whatever it may be, for some like work reason. He seems to be like a like a government guy, but he decides to like go visit. Is this a castle as well? There's a lot of castles in this. He goes to visit this mansion or this castle where where the, his ex girlfriend is staying, along with a guy who's friends with the narrator separately. From and the, this other guy is like a painter, right? Am I remembering yeah, that correctly? Correct. It was some, yeah, some kind of delicate art. Some, you know, some delicate professorial kind of vibes on this guy. You seem like old, gentle, and sensitive. Kind of pretentious, though. Maybe seems to think highly of himself. Yeah. So we get a we get a moment uh, on his way to see them, where there's a flashback to kind of how well they're getting along. The ice hasn't fully taken over it's like a comfortable kind of sunny day and they have a good time together they spend out and at this point the painter and the girl are are a couple and the girl's being like perfectly polite to the narrator but they're not acknowledging like their past like there's something that he wants to that he wants like her uninterrupted private attention for like and i think like at this point like she wants that too to like i don't know like uh, i guess like uh Kind of clear the air. Go over like how they yeah. So it's um it feels like like a kind of healthy situation, but when uh you know now we go back to the the present timeline. He arrives at the castle. It's snowing and miserable. 
and the guy, the painter, wants nothing to do with the narrator, and the girl is gone. And he's like bitter about it. He like he's like, oh well, she can she can you know whatever she can go go wherever she wants. I don't care about her. And he doesn't want he does he barely wants to host the narrator at all. And we get a vision just like now that I'm thinking about it, we get a vision just like the um the vision of the girl and the warden escaping. And um, we'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we get a vision of the relationship deteriorating mostly in an episode where the painter is once again playing a record that the narrator had gifted them of the songs of the lemurs she hated that shit i was like again with this shit (laughs) again with the lemurs why do you hate me so much why do i have to listen to this (laughs) it's kind of funny i I do appreciate it i don't know if i was like an meant to be funny but it was just like the constant return to lemurs i i think it, it was it was a morsel of comic relief yeah especially since it's it's oh. it's lemurs it's like animal noises it was kind of funny <laughs> right like who just listens to that but what i um what i'm thinking about with this is you know, there's only something that's pointed. It might have to do with um that guy's fantasies of like, oh yeah, even when I'm not there, she's thinking of me or whatever. Like, it kind of like fits in with with a kind of ego of like, you know, even if it's bad, as long as I'm the main influence in her life. But either way, um, like this episode puts the two men closer to each other in temperament, taste, or you know, something. You know, then we get a more explicit kind of identification with the warden, of course. I forgot where I was going with that. But you get it. There's some kind of connection between the narrator and every man that she interacts with. There, there, there's one that he seems to not uh, connect with it at all. Um, yeah, and the, are you talking about the hotel guy? Yeah, he. There, there's like zero identification there. And isn't that interesting where he was willing to leave her with the painter and leave her with the warden, although that one, that one out of pure, like the warden's too much of a chat to, to, uh, <laughs> to, to go up against them. But like, he feels like no connection to the hotel guy. There's nothing similar between the narrator and the hotel guy. And he's like, this guy's too weak, disgusting. Like, I can't, I can't bear the thought of her being with him. Yeah. It was kind of interesting. I, I guess. It's it's gotta be a Chad or no no go. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um. Which which is our, I guess I want to say our first clue, but it's you know, we're we're um we're alluding to events that happen way later. But as I think in our conversation, this is our first clue that not that our narrator who cares, I guess about in the most general sense cares about the is concerned with the girl. In ways that aren't necessarily protective. Oh, almost, almost, almost far from pr- protective. Um, there, there, there's moments where I, where I thought, oh, he's he's gonna he's gonna murder her. Yeah. Like this is the only way that could ever end. Right. Yeah. I kept waiting for that kind of shoe to drop. Because whenever, because there's multiple like instances of the narrator like straight up fantasizing about wanting to hurt her. Or at least, like, enjoying the thought of her being hurt. Like, there's maybe gratuitous, like, one, maybe one rung below gratuitous. But there are very, um, 
vivid descriptions of this woman being like brutalized in different ways, like by nature or by the crowds or being broken in, in many different manners. And the guy's like obsessed, like it's kind of disgusting how he keeps like this, they're referring to her as a like childlike. He's being obsessed with her like brittle wrists. Some broken neck imagery too. Oh God. Yeah. This, yeah. So this, this connection between narrator and elusive girl is that one of queer love. It's, it's more of like a, yeah. Yeah. Something like possessive. Like, I guess I'm, I, I want to, I, I don't want to sound like I'm virtue signaling or whatever, but it's, it's a kind of like male attitude that I'm glad I, I don't feel like I have a lot of access to if I look inwardly. I mean, I, I'll, I'll think, I don't think it's like virtue signaling to be like, oh, I have never, you know, I don't think about breaking the five <laughs> okay, yeah, because yeah. I care about her, like breaking, breaking her wrist or whatever, like. Right. Yeah, no. I'm, <laughs> I want to. I want to hope that this kind of attitude is is rare. I, Although, of course, you know, like there's something. The statistic that the number one cause of death for women is men. That's kind of where, in a way, yeah, culture moves forward beyond. Oh, bo- boys will be boys or whatever. Yeah, and I want to say like none of my friends that I like, no one that I know would have these kinds of attitudes even subconsciously. But also, I guess like I just wouldn't hang out with. The people that put off those kinds of vibes, right, or or throughout throughout those kinds of rage fits, yeah. Um, but this is also a world where, um, like, there's something interesting where the narrator himself doesn't want to face that kind of stuff. Like, he often indulges in these in these fantasies or loses his temper. Um, but he talks about how. And it's it's so fucked up how he blames her for it, but it's just like it's like she brings out these things he doesn't want to face about himself. But it's kind of in a world where also like a lot of the um a lot of like the the, the gentle facade of of civilization wears away. There's a you know a, a Lord of the Flies or you know pick your favorite post apocalypse instead. There's a world where a lot of brutality seems to rise to the top, or at least the kinds of places that the narrator tends to be drawn to. When the girl is in a happy place, it's like in this little tropical place, like that's still yet untouched by the ice. He can't stand to be there very long. He has to. He ends up like miserable with it. So yeah, he asks his buddy for uh, another government post. Yeah, he wants to lift to to war zones. <laughs> so it's also it's something where where like this man like just feels more comfortable in this kind of world of domination and violence. More more Fight Club. Oh yeah, so yeah, there's so, there's something to to the Fight Club of it all. I I, I could I could see uh, what's that author's name, Chuck Chuck Palinik, I think is how you pronounce that. Yeah, I, I could see Chuck Palinik being influenced by Ice. Yeah, this is one of those books that's like uh, I don't know what to call it, like a silent classic, like known to writers and academics, if not the general public. Right. I know what's another example. I feel like, um, I was going to say Borges, but uh, I, I think, in Latin America at least, I think he's more well-known. Like, all his boom writers. Um, Maybe Trainspotting? Well, Trainspotting's got, like, I guess Irvin Welsh in general. I, I haven't read any of his book, but that movie was so popular and defined, like, so many people's definitions of cool. But is is, is the author as well-known as 
the the work itself or like the aesthetic it inspires. I yeah, I think the movie like definitely overtakes it. I think you will find people that if you say, "Did you know it's based on a book?" Like they'll be like, "Oh, a word." Uh, but but um, I feel like Irvin Welsh is like author who like consistently sells enough books. Like I think Polnick is kind of in that place. I think Irvin Welsh is on the same level of fame as like Polnick or Brady Stanellis. Yeah, I, I I guess I guess her fa- her fame or like lack thereof or, or elusiveness is kind of unlike any any other. Yeah, like we'll think of someone eventually. I want to say my my precious Robert Aikman, but I I'm not sure how to gauge this level of uh, niche fame. Oh, may- maybe I guess Robert Chambers might be a fair oh, with those other yeah. weird authors. Yeah, like Robert Chambers is absolutely known if if you're the type of person to delve into capital W weird and be like, oh yeah, this is a you gotta read King in Yellow, but the 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 the, the average person on the street isn't probably gonna be able to pull out his name from memory. No, it, it gets like subsumed by um, Lovecraft and Cthulhu esque mythos. Yeah, Lovecraft got to like break through into that like Edgar Allan Poe level of fame. Yeah, I was like, yeah, this is a this is a, a touchstone for everyone. Uh, yeah, Chambers I think is a really good comparison because she, but because uh, Anna Kevin does get to like kind of like plant a flag for a certain mood, like this kind of extreme pessimism, this kind of uh, elusive approach to narrative and scene setting and there's like very intense not just emotional but like physical description is something that i i don't i don't think i've encountered exactly in the same way i i, I think her description of ice is so unique yeah. yeah like i guess there's three main lanes i can think of which is the kind of the thing that we talked about before already of the soft snow kind of covering everything up the description of how shadows form on ice like how the the day and the night like make the make the light strange when it's when it's cold when it's snowing there's that kind of gentle whiteness over everything then there's like the apocalyptic like aurora borealis giant sheets of ice huge walls and crashing like she's able to describe that like that kind of biblical thing it's it's cosmic like like the stars themselves are ice Oh God! Yeah, the stars of the ice. Mm-hmm. Sorry, just cooling down at the the core. You know that that was right. Yeah, I feel like that. The stars shooting ice beams down like that. Like it kind of like takes a dip into science fiction. I guess like the whole thing is, but you know, like science fiction type imagery. And the third one, I guess, is just the ones that are necessary for like for like scene work. I'm thinking of the of the second encounter that the narrator has with the girl and this time when he gets to successfully steal her away from the warden like right like it would take when he takes her onto the right to the last boat possible you know against her will who like she like does not trust him feels unsafe with him and he takes her anyways and the, the description of him running to that boat getting onto that life raft rowing us in the whole time the snow like hurting him from every or like hurting his eyes, his nose every time he breathed in. Yeah, 
to another aspect, like there's some like really effective action scenes in this uh in the book too. Like it is a moody uh you know, vision of doom and apocalypse. It is this weird thing about relationships and you know whatever you want to say the relationship is a metaphor for or addiction whatever but it just has it also has these really gripping scenes yeah there's there's some cool action with the guerrilla warfare and and, and mm-hmm. the there's a medieval style siege at one point with the with vikings there's vikings in there <laughs> and then that turned out to have happened it felt like that one felt like oh this has got to be a hallucination but but also like maybe the apocalypse got so bad that this is, you know, like what they have to fight with. Axes and leather and armor and steel. <laughs> and then later, like he he somehow I missed the point when he got um when the narrator got promoted to being the warden's like tactician. But there's also the scene later when he's like a spy for no reason. And the way Anna Cappen describes just like a fist fight was like really good. It was like that could have been in a, you know, whatever, an Alex Cross novel, whatever, uh, whatever the, the book that the Fugitive movie is based on or like the fumbling for the gun, trading blows, just noticing when one person recovers or gets knocked down as two other people are coming in. Yeah, there, there, there was it was vivid. Yeah. Poor police officer getting jumped by the rioters. Right, that that was interesting because at first it's like a I don't know it feels like out of Clockwork Orange or something. It's like these young ruffians attacking this cop, but it's also in this context of you know a highly militarized society where everyone is uh, you know every country is descending into into like I don't like even fascism sounds too modern. It's just descending into like this uh feudalistic feudalistic rebellion against apocalypse <laughs> okay so this older guy is like fighting off these hooligans gets like demolished like once they all pulled out knives it's it's over man at the description there too not just the action but like the brutality like just that was that was very visceral but then just like pisses off the narrator and is like now i'm gonna go in and fight them we get like another really well narrated fight scene but like this uh, emotional state that animated the narrator is also very telling. Like he just doesn't like to see um, authority figures <laughs> undermined this way or something. He's like wants to fuck shit up. It, it kind of felt like a, I don't know, it, it, maybe a little Fight Club, you know, something else in there too. It was good stuff. It was good yeah, stuff. It was, nice, it was nice little highlights that kind of made the read easier. Mm-hmm. Once you settle into a like, it's a it's a weird book. It's very like disjointed. But whenever you do settle into a scene, the the scenes are gripping, each in their own way. Um, do you want to? I feel like the next thing to talk about is just because we like we've been mentioning the warden. Do you want to like get back in the story and yeah, kind of skip ahead to the to the warden when he sees the he goes to visit the painter. He the girl is gone. At this point, he had decided to kind of drop everything that he was doing before and just devote his life to, to finding finding the girl again. I guess I guess saving her from whatever catastrophe is to come. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of unclear, like if he ever wants to be with her. Just like he just needs to see her, be around her, like possess her. Yeah. So yeah, that that um, kind of you know that, dis- that initial disappearance ignites this whole chase with her. 
which after uh-huh. encountering her leave on, on a ship leads him to the to the warden. And that's when the insanity began. Yeah. We ever get more of uh, more details about the geopolitical state of the world where everyone's kind of fighting each other and uh the warden I feel like it's like a Nordic country, maybe. It just says the north. It's a smaller country. I, I think like fjords and like a Oh yeah, those are fjords. Some sea serpent was mentioned that the villagers would sacrifice uh virgin girls to yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I I got some like Sweden, Norway, mm-hmm. D- Dayland type vibes. Yeah, and like the King Viking uh of this area is the warden. Like it's this country that like it it was like he had to like kind of elbow his way into. It wasn't clear that that, that he was allowed to be there. It's, like, war-torn. There's very few resources. It's a lot more snowed in. Like, there's really no place to stay except for with this woman who he's paying really well and who, like, doesn't want him there. No, she hates him. And if the first if the first clue wasn't, like, his fantasy about the, the, the girl being hurt, that this uh, guy isn't um, good for women... <laughs> If the first clue wasn't those fantasies, then it would be when he, like, forcibly took the keys to the house from the woman he's staying with. Yeah, he was an asshole. He smugly, like, thinks to himself, like, it was the principle of it. That way she won't... She won't, she won't do it again uh, or something like resist that. Resist me again or something. Yeah, it was... Uh, yeah, he's staying there, He and at the... At this fortified... I'm going to say castle. I feel like there's a kind of a medieval streak with there's like a very like modern take on like the kinds of stories that Don Quixote would make fun of, you know, like knight knightly, you know, chivalrous knight stories. Like he's off to rescue the princess. Oh, it's, it's totally a, uh, not satire, but it, it's, it's a very cutting. I don't know. Inversion commentary. Cause I'm, I just realized just talking about it. The, yeah, the, the amount of like the amount of castles involved and that this guy's like a like a warrior yeah so the warden is the leader of this country of this small country we don't see this well, one area and is fighting off revolts or is in charge of a revolt he does we're we're in this bow thing right so when we're in this scandinavian area he's um i guess for preventing revolt right yeah i think so because, yeah, everyone seems to be like, oh, there's order here. There's like a, a hint of this ultra-violence in, in the warden, even when he's maintaining order. And then, like, once we actually get to meet, like, just like that he that he's, like, in a keep, you know? <laughs> he feels like a, like, a, like, a, like a boss in a video game. <laughs> but then when you see him, like, every everything about him just communicates, like, a, an ability to dominate. If not with the threat of violence, well, yeah, with the 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 implication from "It's Always Sunny," he just seems to have this like ability to dominate people, even with just his his intense blue eyes. Just by staring alone, he'll. We find, and yeah, he does have the the girl there in a soundproof room, for like, oh, God, that's like, fuck, that was one of the most difficult things to read through, was the vivid description of how i guess like how he would 
rape her, right? Like not to like. Oh yeah, no, I, yeah. yeah. I mean, no, no, that's 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 exactly what he was doing, forcing her. There was I'm, something I'm, so. I'm not gonna repeat the imagery. Just you know, forcing her onto the bed, holding her down. Yeah, there was something so vile about it, and it was like, um, the way it was, it was like wearing down her spirit. Like it wasn't even about, you know, like a physical assault, but it was like, just the way he would like. I got it. It's like even rough to like talk about. Like I don't want to like go back in there, but I was like with his looks, just like wearing down her spirit until like she would accept that there was no use in fighting back at all. In fighting, like yeah. Sorry, I, I, it's hard to. This is very thorny, um, but it's rough. But immediately, like you understand, this guy is um, like full like male id. Like with the narrator, that's like that's like a part of him, and then I think that's where, like, part of this identification is that um, this urge to dominate and to dominate women, in particular, to dominate her, is something that that um, the warden and the narrator like connect with. Like it's whenever he talks about the girl that the the warden looks at him in a way that is like, oh, you get it too. I think that's the first, like, descriptions of them being, like, on the same page. Right. Like, like oh, we we get each other. Yeah. The knight in, knight in shining armor is not that far off from <laughs> the the dragon, the, the monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, thank you for bringing it back. I was going to say the Bowser. <laughs> oh, no, the, the, yeah. That's a good one, too. Mar- Mario and ba- Bowser going after <laughs> Princess Peach. Or maybe Mario and Wario is, is, is a... Ah, oh. better. Yeah, they're they're more like mirror images. Um, I don't know if there's anything else to touch on in this. Yeah, if if uh, if you hadn't, if the reader hasn't picked up on the narrator being bad for women at this point, then maybe they get suspicious when they see that the that the girl is immediately suspicious of his presence as whenever he gets to have even the smallest bit of she's like what are you what are oh, you doing yeah. here you're you're in league with the warden too what what the fuck in, in that dark room warden shows up and in, in, into there and all who makes her get ready to uh to leave because it, it's it's her last chance assume because the, the yeah. villagers of that area were planning to do that human sacrifice right yeah so that's why that's so at first he's not even able to see her because the warden is like uh Oh, well, is kind of like controlling access to her and is like, well, I'll ask her, but, and kind of like keeps him waiting until he gives up. Then he finds out that she's going to get sacrificed because all the villagers are turned against her as well. And so from his perspective, it's like, this guy is evil. And not only that, but the society that he's in charge of is also like actively hostile to her. I have to go save her. And even, like, with all this knowledge, like, he is not able to convince her to to go away with him. Nope, he feels quite miserably. The, the, the warden, though, he, he's he's able to get out of there. Yeah. They go racing in that, I don't know, Hummer-sized car, just <laughs> ripping through snow and ice. Was it they, they they ram a gate and security guards to just get out of that country? Yeah, and this is the scene that earlier we were talking about for the <laughs> Yeah, the, the, the narrator guy tries to follow and just can't do it. Like yeah, I love all these descriptions of snow. Whenever Anna Cavan gets to 
flexibility to describe snow, snow and ice, it, you know, and an action scene, a, a, a car action scene. Car try to go fast and ice, but it, you know, slips into a tree, gets stuck. Falls into a hole, like a bomb crater. Almost dies. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the narrator completely eats shit, gives up, goes home, cut to, he's on a boat. I mean, airlifted out of that village. Which is another thing, like, where this guy, like, the way he, like, represents, like, the way his powers kind of... Like, from his perspective, he's always, like, underdog, but he has connections. Like, money's never a problem. He's capable. Everyone trusts him. He's playing resources. To go video games. Again, it feels like he's, like, got the cheat codes turned on. Oh, for sure. Um, this one also has a trial similar to The Stranger or Kafka. Wait, is this when he gets brought in by the police officer? Yeah, like as soon as his ship lands, he's brought into front of jail or corridor, the interrogation room, like right off the bat. Right, and that's when he realizes he can't go back. But either way, that doesn't seem to affect his ability to like draw from his bank account. He's always like on the verge of being wanted and then no one does anything. Like you said, he he he, ha- he has like those existential cheat codes just yeah. <laughs> the entire time. Yeah, just like I don't want to uh, do this level. Um, <laughs> it's a like Grand Theft Auto on ice. Yeah, yeah, th- these things happen. But but uh, like interpersonally, he doesn't ever get to get have one over on people except for when he beats people up or runs them over with his car, right? Or if they're okay with being bribed. Like when if you whenever he tries to tr- to trick someone. They kind of see through him after a while. Yeah, he's 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 not the most verbally persuasive person. Right, he's just like kind of lucky that he's important enough, well connected enough, and that the world is in shambles enough to tolerate him. Even when like you would think that the the warden is like his enemy, but he acts like his friend like for like eighty percent of the time that he's there. That's true. It's kind of odd that, that he, even even the warden is willing to kind of just deal with this guy for a while. And then even when they reunite, it's like, oh, you want the same thing, don't you? Oh, how how are you doing? When he becomes his tactician, it's it's so it was so unexpected. Yeah, it was. And is it is that that portion that the warden is off causing chaos and warfare mm-hmm. for for uh, reasons I don't quite understand, but yeah, at first the first time that they met, it was because he had connections with the. I was gonna say British government, but I don't know. Whatever he has the connections with the his home government, and because he was uh, the leader of a smaller power, wanted to make sure that they were allied. Then it's because of his abilities that he just that. Oh yeah, because he was like a radio show host as as he was being built or something, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a strange detour. He just like insinuates himself into these situations. There's the. Yeah, I feel like, I guess it's a consequence of the types of books that we cover. 90% of them I probably compared at one point to a dream. But this felt the most, like, like dream logic. Like, the way that, like, two scenes are combined just because that's, like, where the where the mind would go. Right. The, the, the way that dialogue would move. It's like, I was having a dream where I was, like, chasing this girl. And then I was, like, second in command to this guy. And he knew the girl. Uh, like, 
It is very, no, very like dream esque. Because I mean, let, let's let's face it: the like passage of time doesn't even matter either. Yeah. Where were we? Oh, r- radio host. Right. Yeah. So the radio host thing, and yeah, I think like the middle of the book is where it's just like things happen. He goes here. He goes there. All very much in dream sequence as well. Like music with the flower girl, and and you know this spy organization to get him to yeah there's a he has because he just happens to have a red flower or a carnation or something I forget um that's apparently like code for a spy to like meet another one and like the a, fl- a flower girl starts talking code to him and he acts like he is the spy because he's he figures that's the best way to get connections or information on how to find the girl to find where the warden had escaped off to um it kind of turns into a james bond thing because he ends up sleeping with her just just because like there's some justification in that he figures the longer he stays with her the more information he can get but also he just like thinks she's hot very 007 of him yeah (laughs) um but she hooks him up with with someone who's higher rank and while he's talking to that person he gets a little bit of information i think but then someone else who was suspicious starts like pointing at him and before he knows it, he's a suspect because he's been impersonating a secret agent. And this is the the fight scene I mentioned before. This is where it turns into a James Patterson book or something. Yeah. Yeah, he has to fight his way out of there. And he ends up just in a lorry. The little these little there's these little moments of British when they say petrol instead of gas. Yeah. And so he gets in a lorry that's like full of these young idealistic people who at first are suspicious of him, but then but then they just let him in onto their plans. He gets comfortable with the guy driving as they go out into the uncharted north, like into these like um dilapidated roads further and further up into some place. And the young people are talking about their stress about being behind on making a trans a radio transmitter. Yeah, this guy helps helps them build it and then also like becomes the head broadcaster. Apparently he's just like really good at telling the news. Yeah, and, and, and encouraging the other side to try to take peace or something. Right? Yeah, and, uh, yeah, there's like like a kind of utopian, like if we all work together we can get through it. But he says that he took care to be honest and not, you know, and not feed false information. And and then he says, like, then things are going so well that he gets bored. And he goes off somewhere. And He decides, oh, I'm, I'm going to go see the warden. <laughs> so what a fun detour. He's just, like, gets a job and gets really good at it. <laughs> and then he decides, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And he goes, okay, what was the plot of the book again? That's right. I was searching for the <laughs> warden. And he gets audience with the warden. He's in a new castle. I believe they do say castle. Yeah. Ford, anyways. Um, he's in a new castle, and he's got the girl in a different dark room in the castle. And he's saying, like, you can't... And then they're friendly again. And like, you can't... Like, I know all about your your transmissions, and just in time, because we're going to make an even stronger radio, and we want you to do propaganda for us. And he's like, yeah, okay. Like, no... Obviously, he didn't care. Yeah, he, he, just, he just wants to... Wants to see the girl. Yeah. So he gets to have a a more intimate scene with her in the dark, and he this time he does take her away. Right, this is the scene where he gets to take her away. 
I thought the girl managed to uh, like kind of escape on her own. Yeah, sorry. I'm... <laughs> so I, I, I thought what happened there is that girl escaped, narrator finds out, so narrator goes to the icy village that she's at. Oh, and then they escape from that village. Right, and that, that was the village where you saw the cop get beat up by looters and whatnot. Right, right. Sorry, yeah, this book is... <laughs> no, it's, 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 it's very dream, dream logically. Like, you, you could you could switch out the scenes in different <laughs> sequence and, like, do, do like, a reverse boss order and be fine with it. Yeah, it's still kind of congeal, probably. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Um, about the, about the, about the, key, oh, about yeah, the, well, so on, on the way to the icy village where a girl ran away to, I guess one thing that kind of cracked me up is that the, the sailors are very mad that they have to, they have to go there. Oh yeah. Cause yeah. Cause they like bribed, uh, the captain, like a tremendous amount of money to go to a place that's dying even more than the previous places were dying. And the whole time, yeah, there, there isn't his presence there they resent having to go so close to all the chaos they won't even turn off the boat no they're they're, they just what like threw him out to the ice (laughs) yeah and it is kind of weird that he would wanna that he would want to go there in these moments there is also like for how dreamy and abstract or whatever how we say you know no uh proper nouns or anything at least, like the texture of a, of a uh, post-apocalypse of crumbling ruins of small communities falling apart, it does feel like lived in and real. Yeah, for sure. Whenever it does, like whenever it gets to stay in in a realism ish tone, it you know I was reading it like I bet it would feel like that. It had a plausibility. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I, I totally bought that. That's how people would behave, or that, that you know, that's how powers would would act under such mm. a scenario. You know, and that kind of like crumbling infrastructure was, you know, I could like picture it very easily. I mean, like it's also not that challenging because I have to do with you. Mostly, you picture snow and rubble. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I mean, like suspension of disbelief was never mm. disrupted. Hmm. So this is also where this is also like when this is when the escape happens. Yeah. Like things start to really break apart. Like at first I thought it was like a general climate change. Like it's just like it's getting colder and colder. But then the this is where I became more aware of the ice wall framing of this. Right. It's not just that it's getting colder generally, but there's there's this border that keeps encroaching over inhabitable areas. Oh, there was that scene where when he's visiting the the warden, he's like, let me show you something. And then it's like this like huge like glacier that's coming. It's like things are about to pop off here. Yeah, when they're in that jet together. Wow, that opportunity for more great like descriptions from Anna. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's like Bedlam getting onto the, getting onto the last boat. Because like already when he gets there to this like even more cold place, there's people evacuating and he manages to drag her onto like what he knows is going to be the last boat. He gets on, you know, that description of the cold. That's when we're talking about the, the cold, like hurting his, his nose and his eyes and his mouth, like being unable to see like the hills of snow, making the, the wind like kick up these geysers of, of 
chill. I think he beats some swimmers with his oar. Yeah. The description of like while he's paddling to the boat of like the with the lovers that are like freezing to death in the water, the the people that he beats up, the guy who he feel like that was a really good moment of like describing action and also just like giving more color is he feels the rocking of the boat. He realized that someone getting on, he turns around, shoots that person. Yeah. And then he gets on, he refusing to help anyone who, who, who even he could potentially help out and they, they get on and that's, and they make away. Um, what do you think of, is this a good time? Maybe the, the time later is just like at the ending to talk about, about the girl. We, we can talk about the girl now since, you know, she's more present here where she's like pissed off and half starved. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, she'd rather stay like in this dying town than go with this guy. Like she gets, this is where she gets to have more lines other than like, what are you doing here? But it's still sparse. I guess it's not until like the very end that we get something more, but the right. whole time before that, like, He's thinking that the reason why she he's not saying take me away, like the reason why he, he can't connect is because of her situation. Like as long as the warden has his influence over her, then he's not going to be able to bring out the real her. And, you know, he even thinks this when he's with the painter. Like he wants like a really like private, intimate, like reckoning to happen. And it always feels like just like, you know, if not for this, if not for that, it always feels like uh, like like there's an emotional distance and then when it's uh when it's a chance to really be a savior, it's I'm trying to remember. I don't have the the lines with me of of her rebutting him, but she's like scared of him, and like he's like super impatient with her resistance. Right. I mean, he he's a horrendous bully to her, really. Yeah. Like he he has no problem just dragging her by the mm-hmm. broken wrist and just taking her along. The, the weird, like, hints at their past. The first thing that we hear is that, you know, like, her whole life she had been, you know, according to him, a victim. I, it's it's so weird. I don't know if it's, like, an American thing where calling someone just, like, a victim as part of their identity is feels like like an insult. Like, like it's so like it's so weird that we can say things like, oh, you're such a victim. Like, that's, like... What, a, a hit at your own, like, individual powers... The, the narrator understanding of her is that she can only interact with the world taking on this role. Right. Or being put into this role, just being really used to other people putting... And it says it starts with uh, with the mean mother, right? Is that what you said? Yes. At the beginning, when, he's, when, when we first, like, flash back to their prior relationship... It says like when they were when they dated because like they're on good terms. Like at first, like she wants to set things on good terms. He's saying he was he was patient. She was skittish. He was waiting for her to open up, but she never quite did. And he was like trying to give her space to feel safe with him. And then when she saw him with when she saw her with the with the painter, he saw her more at ease. Like well, at least with him, she can open up. And that doesn't happen again until she's with the hotel guy with the, uh, you know, at the very end. Right. But then later when he's with the, with the, with the warden, there's that scene that's like, you know, like out of a Conan story or something where he's got like all these women like corralled 
and they talk about um, guards moving the women around and like them having a like a way of grabbing them without bruising them. And he says like that was something I had never mastered. So I don't know if that's like the first. I might have come up before, like, cause, cause I know then it bubbles up more, like how he is very capable of being rough with women. So yeah, so like it, it doesn't come out of nowhere when she's afraid of him. Like part of her thing, and you know, the, the the Fight Club framing also works for this, where she's like, "Oh, you and the warden are together." Like that's part of her suspicion, right? She, you know, he's he's never given her any reason to to trust him. Yeah. Now we at this point there's we we seen enough like the way he got mad like beating up those those hooligans that throwaway line about the bruising um like other moments that show his like aggression for aggression yeah we understand that maybe she sees in him just like another threat just like another domineering man which is fair and I it is just this this probably what it is. Yeah, it doesn't occur, like it is. It is a very easy um thing to accept. Although on the other on the other hand, and okay, I understand her perspective completely. On the other hand, like when the apocalypse is knocking, you, I don't know. I understand like t- wanting to take your chances, right? But in the situation of like move or die, it is um, it's it's it is, it is compelling to also move. I don't know you could you could point this in either direction. Have you heard of that that uh, David Foster Wallace quote about about suicide? No. Um, I want suicide in in the context of uh, like comparing it to like the people that jump out of like buildings when they're on fire, and when the fall would kill them anyways. Well, it's better, it's better than burn. It's better than burning to death, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah the way he describes it is that like even like. Outside of burning to death, one has to consider the uh, this the agony of being in that room on fire being in itself like something so unbearable that jumping off a window is a better alternative. Right. I'm not sure if that would apply to going with that guy or freezing to death. I'm not sure which in this case in this metaphor is the fire and which is the window. I guess whichever hurts more at the time. I, I guess I guess in I can see an argument in this case the the guy being the window. Yeah, might maybe even the guy would see it that way, but maybe in that moment she's saying, "No, I'd rather freeze to death." It's he's the he's the fire. Like if she thinks that he's the same as the warden, like that life that she had locked in the soundproofed room sounds like hell. Then, the, right? Then the ice is definitely the better choice. You know, it it, it was it was being dragged along by narrator that letter to the tropical island and i guess a semblance of normalcy for a while and she 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 came super into yeah. her own there yeah i'm not sure how to what to make of this area it was a nice um break like obviously just because I, I knew the story couldn't end there but i don't i don't know sorry what were you gonna say i, I need to gather my thoughts about about that section what was i gonna say there you know he's, he's not hyper possessive of mm. of her during a time on a tropical island. Yeah, that's true. This was kind of. Uh, but he's unhappy with not being like he like I guess because that aspect of himself that is domineering, like when it comes out, is when he's frustrated, he's not getting what he wants, or 
you know, he thinks he's doing what's best. I think that's like where. Well, I, I think I think he's tactfully trying to be controlling too. Like probably in his logic is, oh, if I if I show the contrast of me and Ward, and she'll trust me more or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen uh, Ex Machina. This is where the, if, if the listener has seen Ex Machina, then we don't know what I'm talking about. Been a while since I've seen it. Oh, you have seen it. I, I I'm I'm not I'm not recalling. So do, do you mind if I? Uh, yeah, go for it. Uh, let me know if you if if this sounds familiar. So like this guy, like this like dweeby kind of guy, is chosen for a trial for his company, where like this uh the CEO of the company is like, I need you to test this AI I've created to see if it's like conscious or whatever, and like the AI looks like a like a pretty girl, and like as he's like having conversations with the AI. Um, like he kind of starts to fall for her and he starts seeing like, it's like a weird setup. He's like at this private, like, um, compound and he's noticing that the guy is the the CEO guy played by Oscar Isaac is like very like, um, like he's very aggressive and dominating and all that. So the main character like, uh, um, contrives to like find a way for her to escape. And does that sound, does it sound familiar? Vaguely. So the story ends where like he like makes the escape happen, but it turns out that the AI she was playing the main character as well, and she traps him in the compound while she goes off on her own. Escapes. Yeah. Um like I'm skipping over a lot. There's a lot of like good detail, like a lot of it is on performance. Like I you know, I think Alex Garland is one of the filmmakers to to look out for. I'll watch anything he makes. But I think like part of the takeaway of that story is that, you know, I guess like we've all like nowadays I think we're all more suspicious of the, you know, nice guy TM. Oh yeah, the the, the nice guy misogyny. Yeah, like either way, like whether it's this like aggressive guy or this other or this like seemingly more gentle guy, it's still someone whose intent is on controlling her or like who won't fully see her as a human right a, a, a nice so, guy can still be uh objectifying mm-hmm. especially if it's under the skies of oh i'm i'm nice because i'm trying to i'm trying to get something out of you yeah because yeah and we because we see that when he's there like it's not enough for him to or i don't know like he's like i guess like why would he want to stay if like he's not in that area, I guess there's something more to him than just the relationship with the with the girl. I don't know. He is like involved with her because he like still like he gives her money when she needs to. And when it's when he decides to leave, like he just like he's bored. He feels like he's disconnected from what's happening in the world. And he sees that this this tropical paradise is doomed not to last. Right. There, there's a chill in the wind and he's not quite happy with how the locals are right because like they don't want to face that right but then when like but he doesn't just leave like he says goodbye to 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 the girl even while she's thriving she's going on parades and dancing and going shopping and all that he like gives her some money says like i'm gonna go away now and she gets mad at him i wasn't sure what to make of that yeah i don't i don't know I don't want to make of that either. I guess she was, she was finally starting to trust him a little bit more. Maybe. Maybe. It was kind of baffling. This is where I wonder if there's like um a 
you know, an uh, an aspect of unreliable narration where they're just like some like maybe like her understanding of the situation wasn't so wasn't so disconnected as it was for the for the narrator. Right. Well, apparently she chose to wait for him until the very end. Yeah. So so it's not like they didn't have some kind of closeness because he like because this section and the description of her during this section is very like um you know it's time for like yada 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 it's like it's like told in montage like oh it was like this and she would go out and she would barely see me except for when she needed money but then like why if that was the case why would she see it as such a betrayal that he's leaving because he's even leaving her with like access to his bank account so it's not about like material like so i wonder if like from his perspective, it's like an all or nothing thing. Like if I'm not the only person in her life, then then it, I might as well not exist to her. Like he couldn't handle her being like he couldn't think of connecting with her while someone else was there. And OK, when it's that guy who's very like dominating, I see, you know, I see that I that would that kind of makes sense. But even when, when he's with the painter who seems to be on friendly terms with with him like when there's another when there's another man in the room so suddenly she's featureless and like nothing like about her is real so i and i i, I like where you're going with that go on yeah yeah it's kind of like trying to think out loud because i think there is like this and the other time that they reunite i get you know when this place has when this tropical paradise freezes over i don't remember if it was all at once or if it was here and also then that he not accuses her of cheating because the second time it's not even like on the pretense that they're in a relationship, but he's like, Oh, were you with the guy who was driving that car? Or even like, Oh, you were with that hotel guy. Just, just an inherent mistrust whenever anyone else is around. Yeah. It's weird. Like this character is like, like she's not, I don't know. I, I guess like, would you say, I don't know. She's not exactly three dimensional, but I wouldn't say she's, two-dimensional no like there's an implied depth um i think the problem we're seeing is is this narrator is yeah hi- just just hi- hyper unreliable yeah uh, it's definitely yeah like our experience of her is through his flattening gaze like it, it is yeah we only see the world through the perspective of someone who is like constantly dipping in and out of hallucination fantasy obsession Right, so I mean, he's so taken with all that that when he leaves, he goes like we were talking before. He goes off to 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 battle, rebel against his ice one last time. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting description where the war was kind of meaningless. Like apparently, like three parties in the war is happening. The ice storm, the ice walls are encroaching. Is I guess an implication of nuclear winter. It, that was the first time that humanity doomed itself, and. In this continuous war, as things break down, like these small powers, the regional powers, like vie for whatever little resources left. But at one point, they describe the the fighting as like purely, like fully meaningless, and it describes that just uh sort of like an expression of being alive is <laughs> is by being violent and smashing things and blowing things up. Which I mean, there's something to that. There's a there's a way that war is part of people's emotional lives, but the idea that that war is can it happen for no true aim besides just sort of shaking off this kind of anxiety about death like this sort of like like it can come purely from uh 
non-ideological, emotional drive to to kill or to, I don't know, to own death anxiety. Right. It's what another aspect of the human experience to go off to war, which is sad and morbid. But there's there, there's a truth to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's something about that. I don't know if you remember in... I remember it more vividly, I guess, because I saw it more recently, the White Noise movie than the... But I think it's a like word for word from the White Noise book. Um, talking about the people that joined the Nazi party as being, like, that being a protest against death by embracing death. I guess it kind of fits with, with the uh, Wallace suicide quote of flames mm. or, or window. Yeah. <laughs> to some people, maybe... Uh, uh, taking the taking control of it is enough of a draw to want to die this way instead of that way. I mean that 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 choice or illusion of choice is mm-hmm. it's it's I mean it's, it's probably compelling when you're faced with a situation like like that of oh be crushed by ice. Yeah. Oh, I can go fight this war. <laughs> right. Yeah. If you're lucky, like you won't even see it coming. It'll just be sudden darkness a bullet goes through your head or you get the oh, like the, the description of the fighting also like it, it reveals thing about the character psychology it's also sort of i don't know maybe in general like we you know the way we like action movies when he successfully gets to hurt someone in the middle of a fight he's like i got the satisfaction of seeing them double over right that's the um the duality of that stuff like you know um uh you kill someone with a gun, the two things that are happening maybe is, oh my God, I just killed someone. And also, ah, good shot. Right. There's a, I guess I could put duality dialectic there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so the narrator gets to ride this dialectic so well that he earns, he kind of forces himself into it but he earns uh an opportunity to meet up with uh with the warden who has like now been promoted is an even bigger big shot in a bigger army yeah he's he is heavily decorated at this point because i guess like to him there is no theology it's all just good shot right and so like now when he's with the warden now it's like he doesn't even care about the girl. Like he says, like the girl isn't even real to him. Like it's all like this this kinship, like closer than brothers. They're like walking around. He shows them his like his private garden, like this kind of I don't know. If I'm I'm picturing like a like a like a greenhouse or like a terrarium or something. Yeah, it it, it feels very um, lovers lovers lane. I don't know. I I I felt as though. You know, the, the narrator, you know, was expressing maybe the truest feelings of love towards the warden. Yeah. There's even another thing about it. I think it was like even earlier in the book where the main character wonders if the the reason for the girl, which is also a horrible way to think of a person, is <laughs> like their purpose in this life was their effect on me. And in this case, it was bringing me and the warden together. Um, but yeah, this connection, like... Get, is really close to being like consummated. It feels like they're yeah. It feels like they're gonna. I don't know. Like this, I think the intensity of Char and Amaro, the last Gundam thing. I'll, I'll 
I'll allow myself to do. Um, oh, it does share that intensity, though, doesn't it? Damn. Yeah. <laughs> right, and, like, the warden is clearly Char, right? <laughs> um, but then suddenly, the warden, like, turns it off. And it's around when he finds out that the guy had left the girl behind. Yeah, well, I, he, yeah. he, like, rips... You know, he rips the plug out. Like he's like, or you know, rips a rug from under him and straight up asking, mm-hmm. "Where, where is she? What'd you do with her?" Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, I left was where I left her." And he's like, "What the hell?" And he's like, "Well, she had, she wanted nothing to do with me." And like, it's kind of chilling. And I think this is telling of like whatever bit is different between them. It's like the two, the two sides of possessiveness. Where it's like you just don't know how to handle her. Like, she would stay with you if you, you know, if you employed my methods. Right. But it's like, neither of these are, you know, I feel like if we're just going to understand these guys as misogynistic, like, you know, uh, women objectifiers, or whatever, it's like two sides. I'm reminded of another quote, a uh, quote, like, um, it's like a, it's a Zizek um, thing about ideology. I mean, it's all Zizek is all idea, whatever. Stop me if you've heard this one about like the or like the kind of uh, mercy of a com- of a strict totalitarian order like old style of Christianity. Like if you don't do this, you're going to hell or whatever. Versus like what's a more like cloying kind of domination. Oh, I've yeah, I've I've heard of that before. Or, or what? There's a greater honesty, forthrightness mm-hmm. to this totalitarian domineering method versus this you know like like you said the more coy one yeah like, yeah the one that's like uh if someone says um you can go to church with me if you want to the unspoken thing is not only do you have to come with to church but you have to want to do it too <laughs> right yeah like don't make me into the villain <laughs> simply submit even if we don't call it that right like more but you know Saying the question of do you want to go to church church with me is like even more domineering because you're you're like forcing that sense of guilt mm-hmm. if you don't want that. Yeah, right. But it's like, but that's like a form that uh, is very roundabout. And it's one that it's a kind of power over the girl that the narrator like wants to have but doesn't seem to be able to affect. And it's so it's one that so. Regardless, it's not something that the that the warden recognizes. He's just like disgusted with his having left her, which is also interesting. Like, if she's happy somewhere else, then great. Shouldn't that be it? like that's where they're similar again? Where it's like, what do you mean? Like, okay, well, maybe if when I was dominating her, if it wasn't me, if it was you, then that's that's okay too, I guess. But now she's alone. What the fuck, guy? <laughs> So then he's like, okay, well, I'm very busy right now, but when I stop being busy, I'll go get her. It was very nonchalant, like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll fly my jet. You'll never see her again. <laughs> yeah, so the the main character, he rushes, he, like, he barely survives escaping the war zone. He gets beat up. Yeah, pretty badly. Like, this is where, like, I think, like, by the climax of the story, it does settle. It does, I don't think it gets, uh, I think it, it does veer into some dreaminess here and there. But it's a, a pretty straightforward, like, straight shot sequence of, I don't know, like, narrowly escaping dangers as he makes a beeline for for that old town. Yeah. He gets in fast car again. And I'm, I'm happy about that. I'm, I, I enjoy 
Caban's description of fast car. Yeah. Ripping through blockades and riding over motorcycle. It's like it's almost a flex that Anna Cabin gets to do where when she, the character just says like, I was feeling really good about my driving abilities. That only works if, to the reader if the writer had successfully sold that um that thrill. I think it like it really worked. Oh, definitely. Uh, I think Anna Cabin has a semi autobiographical novel about her time with the race car drivers. I, I want. I'm gonna try to look for that book. Sounds like a good one to <laughs> to dive into. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but like once he's in this car, the car has got like, even like after he like crosses the border, he still has three quarters of the tank full. He's got cans of gasoline. He's got plenty of food in there. So now he's like chill. Yeah. He goes down to that tropical place, which is no longer tropical right now. It's now it's, now it's a tundra like everywhere else. Right. The palm trees are dead. Their leaves are shriveled up like closed up umbrellas mm-hmm. uh he meets uh the hotel guy that we talked about he's he's got some kind of disability like he's limping well yeah i think the place got bombed and he got declared dead but he's not and right it's like he didn't bother correcting anyone like what's the point like there's no like there's very little society to to maintain there's just like this small community of people that for some reason or another haven't left including the girl right who happens to live at a beach house which is probably awesome when it was tropical, but mm-hmm. now it's brutal tundra. Yeah. I like all these descriptions. I guess we I talked about it before. I like all this description. It feels like a, like a dying memory. Like the way that the, the snow just covers everything up and erases everything. And that feels like... It reminds me of like, um, uh, I don't know, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Like this, this scene setting. Yeah, and it, it, really, it really works without the place names. Yeah, because none none of the proper nouns of of these places matter at all anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just places vaguely attached to memories or the potential for what could have been memories at some point or another. Uh, hold on, I'm trying to I'm trying to get to that last chapter when they're talking because she accepts him kind of like so when they reunite, she's not like combative. She seems comfortable in that community. Yeah. So when 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 uh. The conversation was took a direction. She was kind of nonchalant about it first. She's like, "Oh, hi, how you been?" Which which kind of kind of ticked him off to the point of being abusive again, and you know, yeah. beat her up. So he decides, yeah, "Okay, I'm, I'm done. Go on." Yeah, I'm trying to remember like what the what the turn was where he, where like she opened up and talked about. So it was the way, the way I, I recall it. It was when he stepped out initially to go off on, onto this last ice ice capade on his own, and then he realized, "Well, wait, I should probably go back. Oh, it's it's going to be brutal for her right. alone." And this guy, this chump, isn't going to uh, be able to do anything. I thought the warden was going to show up at any moment, and I was I was surprised that he didn't. Yeah, like that was part of the. Yeah, that was kind of part of the tension too. Is yeah, they're both racing to, to her. Although he did, he actually he didn't tell her, right? He didn't tell her, tell him where she was. No, he he never gave a precise location. But like the way that he was able to find her all the time, and just like the way that this story just has things turn up, it did feel like at any moment. 
he he was going to show up for a final confrontation. But that's even the conversation that he has with with her. Because she is, I guess she is more scared of the warden than she is of the narrator. And when he makes clear that he has something to do with the narrator, like she does believe him this last time. Right. But she still doesn't quite want to go with him. She maybe wants to leave when she thinks the warden could find her, but then he's like, oh, but you didn't tell him, so I'll just stay. I guess he gives like a genuine apology to where she does want to join him. There's a moment where like she was still scared of him. Like he had turned around and he's like, she didn't know I realized I recently discovered a desire to be gentle or something. Like, wow, good for you. <laughs> yeah, fi- finally, too little, too late. <laughs> that, that's such a that's such a like Anna Kevin, like she she understood like this is guy brain. Like, doesn't she realize that I feel differently in this moment despite my past actions? I uh, Shoot, I should have like come up with notes for this because I, I want to do justice to to what feels like like a meaningful exchange here. Uh, sudden terror seized her. The thought of the man whose ice blue eyes had a magnetic power, which could deprive her of will and thrust her down into hallucination and horror. Always near her, close behind the world's normal facade, had become concentrated on him. The warden's a little bit of a Fu Manchu. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Face convulsed, she gasped in a voice, choked by tears. Have you had enough yet? Can you ever stop bullying me? Suddenly I felt ashamed, muttered, I'm sorry. I wish I could somehow obliterate past words and actions. She had thrown herself down again, flat on her face. I stood looking at her, not knowing what to say. The situation seemed to have gone beyond words. In the end, I could think of nothing better to say than I didn't come back only to ask those questions, you know. There was no response at all. I was not even sure if she had heard me. I stood waiting while the sobs slowly died away. In the silence, I watched the pulse. I watched the pulse in her neck, still beating fast. Presley put out my hand, gently touched the spot with the tip of one finger, then let the hand fall. It's kind of like white sand hair the color of moonlight. So it was less, hmm. less what was said and, and more, more that his approach to her changed yeah. non-verbally. Right. There was a direct like engagement. Cause before, I guess he was talking about like making her fear go away, not making her fear go away, but waiting for it to go away. Or at other times it was being impatient with her fear like, cause like the read that vein was like one that would pop up when she would be anxious or scared. I think that's what he, what he understood about it. So this time he's like engaging with it. Right. With a bit of tenderness, mm-hmm. a bit of patience. Yeah. Also, I mean, obviously the neck isn't where it would go, but I think we did a good job of avoiding, um, framing everything through autobiography. Um, but if I could bring it in for a second, it's like the way the that heroin addiction comes up a lot uh, when people talk about this book. I don't know if that's fair or, or not, but we can pursue that direction. Yeah, just for just for a second, if we like, if we just indulge in this angle, um, because there was um, I just because like I was trying to think like where it fit, and for the longest time, I'm reading the story and like this elusive thing that this guy chases after and can't live without and never seems to like, he has a satisfying thing. Like 
that felt like that felt like okay this whole like in a way maybe she's like a metaphor for for heroin or heroin addiction like like his relationship to her is but in this case is like she's often scared often feels isolated alone or victimized and like he touches her vein and she relaxes she gets to relax in this like dying like this like freezing painful cold world then he invites her to this like warmth where he tells her that there's uh it's still warm in the equator and we can stay there forever even though the ice is coming it's it's almost as though he's her uh heroine yeah yeah it's it's yeah it's not one-to-one i'm sure you could you know you can play in any direction that's interesting because like then it gets like the last thing we get is like this weirdly warm intimate tender thing and like i want i after the entire book that preceded it i it's hard for me to believe this is just the redemption of this man to truly love the way the woman in the way that she needs to be loved in the last moments of the world but if anything, it's maybe just, you know, we can apply this kind of like, you know, opiate narcotizing aspect as well. Like it, you could also maybe see it as both of them embracing the now that, you know, that receding now, even though they're, you know, the death of each other and the world is imminent anyways. Like it's it's cold out there, but it's for now it's warm. It's is cozy in this car which gets to be bittersweet like just depending on like how you how you interact with it like is this you know is this like kind of like um you know a absurdist uh positivity or is it like a very pessimist or is it just like push yeah just like a pessimistic uh pushing away of anxiety i can see both interpretations both both reads it does end in a in a very chilling like it's not just they're they're um they're being together, but it's like the revolver felt comforting in my <laughs> right, right. Because he, he, you know, they do have that easy way out. The weight of the gun in my pocket oh, was reassuring. I didn't even think of that. That's tr- that's true. I was just thinking about like his draw to to violence and like this feeling of like no matter what, I'll kill whatever. Like um, I can the. Like, be this protector guy but yeah just a general like embracing annihilation like <laughs> if anything we can just i didn't even think of it that way that's that's true i would want i was just thinking so many times about the book i was like man if the world gets if i'm alive and the world gets to this i i'll make sure i'm not alive for long right you know if, if the home gets cold enough mm-hmm. such a scenario you know i i think i think it's sad tragic pessimistic with that little, little twinge of almost almost happy or this is the best way it can go yeah going back to the uh to the uh to the heroin thing it seemed like the the girl had found a community of people that cared about her and she could have gone with them when the weather turned sour but she stayed and waited for the guy Right. And like, if that's not something, I mean, that, that I think that applies to like, I, you know, and the, I think this, this goes with uh, Tolkien's aversion to allegory, the way that kind of like flattens stories, makes them just like uh, pure didacticism or, you know, thematically boring. Yeah, we could say like addiction stuff kind of applies to, applies to this story, but, you know, isn't the lens. 
um, I don't know, there's something, you know, there's something I'm pulling out now and thinking about it is that's kind of like a dark thing about addiction is that it isolates you from the people who would care about you so that the thing you're addicted to then becomes your only comfort. She could have chased whatever warmth was left, but she chose a situation where the only warmth was in this car with this man with a gun. Trying to think. I mean, what's what's a counter? There like some kind of Stockholm sy- syndrome type mm. of deal. Not o- not only with this man, yeah. but you, even even with the with the warden impending ice, even. Oh yeah, like that's something that comes up a lot. Is sometimes like in, in facing the cold is the thing that comes up so much about forgetting the world before the ice. Yeah, forgetting there's anything else. Even when she escaped to the warden and like she went to frozen frozen hell zone for some some reason. Yeah, and she didn't wanna and she didn't wanna leave with him. Then she was she was content to freeze to death in that place she had escaped to. That's true. Or what? She she was maybe the the ice is also allegorical for this this kind of yeah the white stuff that covers you. Uh, <laughs> for speaking of annihilation exterminator. Yeah, yeah, that kind of that does apply too. This thing that covers everything up makes you forget everything before it erases. Like it makes everything foggy. Like this is such a miserable book. <laughs> yeah, so not to not to make this too much autobiographical, but I do like how much of this uh helps unlock uh different ways of looking at the at the story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's so there's so many angles you could mm-hmm. take at this. Yeah, there's a there's a feminist angle, there's a drug memoir angle, there's there's a societal critique. There's the Prince Charming critique. I'm I'm impressed with how, how well she writes a male character. Yeah. Yeah, it was an unpleasant like headspace to be inside of, but it was one that felt um believable. It was really well drawn. It was it was ultimately rewarding to get that imagery. Because that action of the fast cars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I don't think there's a book I'll reread again. I think I'm glad I did it. But it was... Like, I'll revisit Uncle Vanya probably before I I immerse myself in this one again. I, I, I'd be more interested to see what else Annika Van had done. Yeah. Usually a, li- a little less, less down. Uh, my only other experience with Anna Cavan is a, a a short story anthology called Machines in the Head. Was it was it equally? Yeah, no, it. <laughs> yeah, it feels like like a bunch of like um, interconnected Kafkaesque vignettes that go in and out of diary mode, just describing a kind of hopelessness about about life and relationships with other people. It tells of like. I don't know, just like the, like these, like because it's not like um like plots. It's just vignettes or images of a plot. Yeah, it sounds like a cool style, at least. I won't read the whole thing. Um, I have it here in my hands. the The story, the enemy. It's like two two pages long. Somewhere in the world, I have an implacable, implacable enemy. Although I do not know his name, I do not know what he looks like either. In fact, if you were to walk into the room at this moment while I am writing. I shouldn't be any the wiser. For a long time, I believed that some instinct would warn me. It warned me if we ever came face to face, but now I no longer think this is so. So it just describes like this like diffuse kind of anonymous threat. And 
this feeling that eventually this enemy in some way will destroy her completely. Jesus. Uh, I know that I'm doomed and I'm not going to struggle against my fate. I am only writing this down so that when you do, you do not see me any when so that when you do not see me anymore, you will know that my enemy has finally triumphed. Yeah, I'm going back a little. He will not. He'll never be satisfied until he has destroyed me utterly. It is the beginning of the end now. It's yeah. It's just this kind of like <laughs> this this uh mood, this tone being like hammered at you over and over again. Hammered is a little too aggressive. It's more like snow falling on top of you, being buried in snow. Jeez, she's good though. Yeah, it's good imagery. R.I.P. I sounds like she's had a hard life. Yeah. I hope that she that like with this stuff she's been able to make a few people feel less less alone. Right. I mean it is maybe the motive of it, right? Is to show others like, hey, I I am I'm at this place as well. Yeah. Or just like I've got this thing, I gotta get it out of me. That'd be true too. I don't know. I think we I think we we we've uh I think we we've covered ice. I think we have. Anyone listening to this who hasn't read it, I think by now, you know if you want to read it for yourself or not. I, I think I think it's a cool read out of a feminist critical lens. Yeah. If I'm like uh, walking through a Barnes & Noble with someone and they pull out that book because the, the cover looks interesting and they go, oh, have you have you read this? This looks pretty interesting. And, you know, if they find out I have, they're like, do you recommend it? I'd, I'd pause, though. I'd be like, eh. Where are you at in life? How do you? How are you feeling right now? What's what's your place right now? Yeah, how are you doing? Uh, so a qualified a qualified recommendation for me. Just uh, be warned. This is there's a book that demands a lot of patience and also a lot of like emotional resilience. Yeah, but that was uh, Ice by Anna Anna Cavan or Anna Cavan. Anna 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 Cavan. Anna. Kavan, yes, this is how we speak and say names. Yeah, uh, join us next time where we're going to jump back into Gundam. We're going to do... Uh, Victory Gundam is next, right? I, I thought it was Art. Stardust Memory. Oh, okay. Oh, good, we can... We can avoid depressed Tomino for a second. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, speak, yeah, that's what I was thinking. We're going right from depressed Anna Cabin to depressed Tomino. Okay, now we got a little bit of of a of a bit, bit of a bit of a break buffer. A buffer. There we go. Yeah. Um, and then after that, um, is it official? We're doing uh, Sabers of Paradise. Yeah. Heck yeah. Let's 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 do it. Let's do some. All right. Let's lock it in. Let's do some historic epic. It's gonna be Sabers yeah, of Paradise yeah. by Leslie Blanche. Yeah, so a little bit more tundra, hopefully a little bit less uh, doomed pessimism, or more, whatever. Bring it on, whatever, whatever comes. Let's let's read Savers of Paradise. I, I think it's going to be more uh, warrior culture for sure. Oh yeah, we're we're gonna get a lot of that. We're gonna get a lot of uh, fur coats, I I imagine. Big beards, uh, horses, <sighs> mountains. <laughs> It'll be cool. It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. It'll be enjoyable. All right. But until then, uh, have a pleasant evening. Have multiple pleasant evenings. Yeah. Stay, Stay warm out there.